Welcome to Write Now with Scrivener, where writers talk about how they work, how they develop their ideas, and how they use Scrivener, the app built for long-form writing projects. I'm your host, Kirk McElhern, author of Take Control of Scrivener. Today, I'm happy to welcome Christy Ashwanden. Christy is an athlete, a journalist, and the author of the book Good to Go, which is about recovery. Christy, thank you for joining me. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me on. We're going to talk about recovery for athletes. And as I said, I'm not an athlete and you are a an extreme athlete. But I just want to point out that we are one day away from the beginning of this year's Tour de France, which starts tomorrow in Denmark. And if there is any sport in the world where training and recovery play a huge role, it's that, isn't it? Oh, it sure is. And in fact, you know, as you know, because you read the book, I have uh, some anecdotes in there about the Tour de France. In fact, back when I was in high school, um, my physics class, we did a unit on energy. And I watched this amazing video, which used the jelly donut and writers in the Tour de France to explain, you know, matter and energy. It was fantastic. And I discussed that in the book. And it's pretty interesting, too, to look at how uh, the, the evolution of nutrition and diet among Tour de France writers. So, you know, 20 years ago, they were just sort of eating typical French food. And now there's all this, you know, everything's sort of been scientifically, you know, uh, broken down. But at the end of the day, I think uh, what really matters is that you're getting energy and, and, uh, you know, a lot of food when you're riding the tour. It's just sort of like in and out. You got to eat as much as you can. Well, I watched the French feed of the Tour de France. Every year, there's at least one report with one of the teams showing them eating a meal and these piles of pasta, tons of pasta. So it's not that scientific in their normal meals. But then, of course, when they're riding, they have their energy bars and et cetera, et cetera. So let's start at the beginning. This is a book about recovery. And recovery is what happens when you're tired from doing a sport, right? Yeah, basically, recovery is like all the things your body has to do to get you ready to go again. You know, it's you do a hard workout or you perform, you know, you're a rider in the Tour de France, you do today's stage race. And then tomorrow, you know, what does your body need to be ready to go again to perform? Couldn't they just rest? (laughs) You know, it's funny because in a lot of ways, it really is that simple. This is something like so many other things in our culture right now where we've taken science to it, but in some ways we've just sort of made it overly complicated. And, you know, we've now convinced people that they, they need some sports drink company looking over their shoulder and like measuring their sweat in order to know, you know, whether they're hydrated when in fact, you know, our bodies are very highly sophisticated machines and you actually have this physiology that's extremely good at maintaining what's called homeostasis, which is basically, you know, that sort of baseline, how how your body should be. And you've got this amazing, powerful way of ensuring that you're hydrated. It's something that we locally know as thirst. So when you uh, need liquids, you're thirsty and that's what drives you to drink. It's worked for generations and thousands of years. But somehow now that we have these manufacturers of sports drinks, uh, we've been convinced that we can no longer trust our body and our bodies don't don't know what's good for us, that we need, you know, some corporation telling us what we need to do. Yeah, the water thing is something that I'm particularly attentive to. First of all, when did we start telling people to hydrate and stay hydrated? When did it change from, <laughs> you know, drink some water that sounded, you know, more, yeah. more simple? And in my work as a technical writer, I was reviewing some apps of like to record how much water you drink. And I was just thinking logically, okay, if I were to record how much water I drink, 
I need to record how much I urinate. I need to record how much I sweat. How do I know how much I sweat? There's no way to measure that. Yeah. How can I know how much to drink? And there really is no way. And then you get these sort of mythological things. I think in the States, they say drink eight glasses of eight ounces of water a day. Right. <laughs> in France, interestingly, they say you should drink a liter and a half of water a day. And do you know why? Because bottled water is sold in bottles of one and a half liters. Uh-huh, right. Yeah. <laughs> Convenient, yeah. Yes. It's, it's so fascinating and it's really become, I mean, I've seen in some instances where hydrate has almost been like, you know, people say stay hydrated instead of like stay well or it's almost become a greeting and it has just really taken over the wellness industry and it sort of, it makes me laugh when I think about, I just imagine myself going back, say, 20 years and telling people, you know, in the future, people will pay lots of money for bottled water that's no different than what you get from the tap and, you know, we will be very fixated on drinking this water and you know that people didn't used to fixate on this and I don't think that we're any better off for it in fact we we truly aren't what we have now is a situation among athletes anyway uh, where people are literally dying because they're drinking too much water it's actually uh, very dangerous to overhydrate because you mess up your uh, the salts in your blood and all of this you can have brain swelling it's it's terrible and what we have now in marathons and long distance events is people who are dying of this it's called hyponatremia because they've been convinced that they need to drink 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 um, instead of just drinking to thirst which if you drink to thirst you will never die of either dehydration or overhydration because you know you're listening to your body and it's telling you what it needs. <laughs> You say in your book, from a biological perspective, it's hard to imagine that the human body is so delicate that it can't function properly without scientists or football stars swooping in with calculators to tell us how to keep it running properly. When did this begin? You have a chapter on Gatorade and sports drinks, and I go back to like 1969, astronauts landed on the moon and they're drinking Tang and everyone wanted to drink Tang. I was 10 years old. I wanted to drink Tang. It was so cool. But I didn't think I was going to become an astronaut. It was just this sort of transference, right? When did it turn out that everything has to be measured? Yeah. Um, I do think that sports drinks had a lot to do with it. And Gatorade, of course, is sort of the the star drink here and the one that everyone knows. And in some ways, it's almost gate, the word Gatorade has almost become a stand-in for sports drinks, right? And and it's been really it's really interesting as I was researching the book to see how, you know, initially it was all about keeping people um quenching their thirst. And it really was, I mean, initially the, the terminology actually used the word thirst, you know, whereas now we've gotten away from that. And in fact, the message, which is absolutely wrong from a scientific perspective, is that you can't trust your thirst. And that there's this saying I hear again and again, by the time you're thirsty, it's too late, which is just bogus. Like there's no, that's, that's not actually true, but we've been convinced that you, you can't wait. And so I think that these sports drinks, as they started moving along, it became about more than just the thirst because they had to convince you that you, you don't want to just drink water. There's a reason you have to drink the sports drinks, which by the way, are, have a lot of sugar and, you know, the salts and all that, which in some instances, if you're exercising to burn calories and things like it may not be, you may not want to replace all those calories with, you know, with sugar and a drink, but but they started using this term electrolytes. So electrolytes is basically just a scientific word for salts and solutes. So that's things like sodium and potassium and what else? That's right. And all this stuff. And, and we get all of that stuff from the foods we eat. Like there's really not a compelling reason to put them in a sports drink. There's not a reason you need to be drinking them. Um, and most of us, if we're eating a normal diet, are getting them you know, from the, the foods that we eat. And in fact, your doctor may tell you that you need to cut down on salt in some instances. But here we have the sports drinks companies saying, oh, you need to drink the salt. And, and there are a lot of sort of pseudoscientific explanations that are given for why you need the salt or, you know, you need to measure 
measure this. And they've really made it very sophisticated and overly complex with calculators and things. And, and none of these are very good. In fact, in the book, I talk about these P charts, which you've probably seen. They're, they're like paint swatches for urine. And your urine's supposed to be a certain color. And that shows you whether you're hydrated. Well, in fact, what that shows you is just what, what's happening in your kidneys. Are they holding on to water or are they letting it go? And that's, you know, your your body's doing that to keep you hydrated. It's not, you know, if, you're, if your urine's very clear, it just means that you're drinking more than you need and you're just peeing a lot because you're drinking too much. So it's it's not that, you know, you're, you're, you're well hydrated, sure, but you can be very well hydrated and have dark urine because your, your body's holding on to those extra liquids. Didn't back in the day they tell athletes not to drink? So I remember when I was a teenager, I played ice hockey and we had these water bottles with the little... I don't know, like a downward pointing straw, you'd squirt it in your mouth and they'd tell us to spit it out and not to drink it. Even though we were on a, uh, an ice rink, but we were still sweating, dripping with sweat. And they told us not to drink the water. Yeah, that's right. It used to be that that, that was the standard um, you know, saying. And in fact, in, in early mar marathons, they said, oh yeah, you don't want to drink. And um, I interviewed a guy, Andy Burfoot, for my book, who actually won the Boston Marathon back, gosh, I can't remember now what year, but it was several, you know, generation ago, let's say. And he said back then, you know, that it was like, no, you don't drink. And people along the race course would hand them little pieces of, of orange um, that they would maybe squirt in their mouth or eat. And that, but that was the only liquids they were getting. And, you know, no, no one there, he, you know, he won the, the marathon and didn't keel over and die of dehydration. Now, you know, it's probably on a hot day, a good idea to take in some, some liquids. And yeah, the other thing too, is um, when it comes to sports drinks, there's kind of this conflation of hydration and then the nutrition there. So if you're doing a long distance event, um, it will be very beneficial and performance enhancing to take in some calories, to take in some sugar and carbohydrates during the event so that you don't, you know, we call it bonking where you, you deplete the glycogen in your muscles. So when you run out of that fuel and so a sports drink can help with that. It's not the hydration. It's it's not the, um, you know, the liquids. It's that those calories that are helping you. Yeah. In French, they call that la fringale. When a rider's going up a hill and all of a sudden there's no energy and they're just, they're all, you know, I don't want to spend the whole podcast talking about drinking, but when you watch the Tour de France, it's summer and they're going through water a lot, but they're sweating a lot too, aren't they? Yeah, they are. And I'll tell you what, when I want to cool down, I, I, sometimes I'd rather put the water on my body to help cool than drinking it. It's really interesting too, because there's this idea that staying hydrated will will prevent heat stroke and all that. And there is some correlation, you know, being dehydrated is slightly correlated with heat, heat stroke and heat illness, but it's not, there's no guarantee, you know, simply drinking more water cannot allow you to exercise in the heat. And I think it's a really dangerous idea where people think, well, if I just stay hydrated, I'll be fine in the heat. It's like, no, that's not going to help you. So most of your book is about recovery. And there's an interesting study that you were involved in. You say, a few years back, as I gulped my cold finish line brew because you had a habit of drinking beer after races, I began to wonder, was beer really such a great recovery drink? So you did this scientific study about people who were exercising and drinking beer. Now, I must say you live on a winery, so I guess this is kind of an influence. But what happened with this study? What Did it show that beer is good for recovery? 
Yeah, it was really interesting. So we put together this study and we used sort of the standard uh, techniques that people use. So we chose a measure, which is very standard in sports science, which is something called a run to recovery. So you're basically put on a treadmill. Um, in our case, it was about at 80% of max. And just you had to run at that pace as long as you could. And this is just really sort of boring and uncomfortable. And at some point you're like, okay, how much longer do I want to keep doing this? And there was kind of a psychological uh, element, you know, everyone here is a volunteer, et cetera, et cetera. So the protocol sort of went, you came into the lab on a, you know, after work about five o'clock or something, did a hard run on the treadmill and they, they did all these measurements so they could titrate the pace correctly and everything like that. And then after the run, we were fed a pasta dinner and given a titrated amount of alcohol, um, which was supposed to be, so it was sort of uh, measured to be just below where you were legal to drive. So not completely smashed, but you know, not entirely sober either. And so it's, for me, it was, I think, a beer and a quarter or a little more than one beer. And this, these were, you know, a little bit higher alcohol beers, I think seven, six or seven percent. So so that was the protocol. And then the next day we came in for this this uh, run to exhaustion, the thing where you had to keep running until you were sick of running anymore. And what we found is that women seemed to perform better on those runs to exhaustion uh, the morning after they'd had the beer, whereas men performed worse. And this was, you know, to me, it was an exciting result because, you know, I'm a woman married to a man. And this was like licensed to say, sorry, honey, you are the designated driver. I need to drink this beer, you know, to enhance my recovery. <laughs> but, but it, you know, I, I couldn't believe the, this, the result because I was part of the study and having known and felt for myself um, what it was like in the study. First of all, I, I didn't trust that the measure we were using for recovery was a good one. And uh, we also used, so the only thing that we found a significant difference, a meaningful difference uh, be between beer and not beer was this run to exhaustion. Um, but the feeling of, we, we also took some things of like just this uh, subjective measure of how are you feeling? Are you feeling tired? And there we found no difference. And so you know, when I think about what I really care about, that that's it. And so in that case, there wasn't, you know, it wasn't that beer was performance enhancing. Now at, the, at this level of sort of moderate beer consumption, it, it wasn't detrimental either. And I think for me, that was a takeaway. But it was interesting because, you know, we really had license here to have this headline grabbing, you know, idea that, you know, beer is great for women, bad for men. But, I, you know, when it came down to it, I didn't think that that was a reliable result because our measure wasn't good. And then we also had, you know, some outliers. We had one guy who went really, really long after not having, we actually use placebo beer here. So, and this is another problem is that everyone could tell that even though we were using this placebo beer, which looked the same, we had these clear plastic cups. So you could sort of see everyone drinking, but you couldn't tell the difference. But, you know, who among us? Yeah. Yeah. Who among us can't tell the difference you know, <laughs> uh, between a real beer and a, a placebo beer? You know, most of the people in the study were people who enjoyed, you know, you're not going to sign up for the study if you're not someone who enjoys drinking beer. <laughs> and so there was maybe incentive to want to, to perform better. And particularly because you're doing this thing where it's kind of up to you to decide when are you sick of doing this? Um, and then the other thing that happened was this was really interesting in our pre-meeting where we were sort of explaining the study to everyone, the, the researcher running the study, uh, someone had asked him, you know, how long does this run to recovery usually last? And he said, oh, usually about 20 minutes. And so after the study was over, I sort of debriefed and I talked to everyone and, and all of us sort of felt like, okay, we, 
based on that, we felt like, okay, we needed to go 20 minutes. And after that, you know, it was okay to stop or, you know, but it was sort of like, you needed to at least go 20 minutes. And what was interesting is there were two people who missed that meeting. And so they didn't get that particular instruction and none of, neither of them had gone 20 minutes. So they had stopped before then, which I think is really interesting. So it just, you know, it felt like, you know, man, science is hard. It's hard to get yeah. a, a good answer, particularly with a small study like this. You know, it was interesting. I think, you know, to me, the real takeaway was that we weren't seeing for the things that we really cared about, which was how are you feeling the next day after the beer? We didn't see any significant difference, which to me says, you know, moderate beer consumption after a hard run is not going to, you know, is probably neither going to help nor hurt you. So do it if you want, but don't think that it's going to be the be all or end all. But again, it would have been very easy to run that attention grabbing headline um, and that, you know, would sort of become fixed in lore. And, you know, these things are impossible to, to overturn once they've come into, you know, the public imagination. And we've really seen that with hydration because we have a situation now where that these notions about hydration have become very dangerous. You have people whose health. And the thing that's really interesting is the, the symptoms of dehydration are very similar to the, the symptoms of overhydration. So you get these situations where people think oh i must be dehydrated i need to drink more when in fact you know they've gone in the other direction okay let's take a break when we come back we'll talk about how you use scrivener sounds great writing a book screenplay or even a long article is a juggling act you need to find the right words and the right structure keep track of research and refer to notes tailor-made for long writing projects scrivener is the go-to app for writers of all types Scrivener combines a typewriter, binder, and corkboard in a single app. A project outline makes it easy to get an overview of your work and flip between sections. Refer to research alongside your writing and just drag and drop to rearrange your work. Write in any order in sections as large or small as you like and let Scrivener stitch it all together when you're ready to share your words with the world. With Scrivener, you'll find everything you need to start writing and keep writing. Scrivener is available for Mac, Windows, iPad, and iPhone. Download the free trial from ScrivenerApp.com. Right now with Scrivener listeners can get a 20% discount with the coupon code PODCAST. That's ScrivenerApp.com. So there's a lot of data in this book. You've obviously read 3,000 articles yeah. and <laughs> done all the research on Google and everything I'm guessing you used Scrivener's research folder a lot to write this book. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, first of all, I have to tell you that I use Scrivener for everything. I mean, literally everything, not just I, I, I cannot imagine writing a book without Scrivener. I mean, I have friends who have done it and I'm like, what is wrong? Like how? How? I don't know how you would do it, <laughs> but I use it for all of my reporting, my journalism. I even use it. Um, I run some writing workshops. I have one going on right now that's for book proposal writing and I organize my uh, my workshops in it. So I use, you know, I use the binder. I have all of my uh, homework assignments are in there. I can organize it. What I love about Scrivener is I'm kind of an ADHD sort of organized person. You know, if you look, I, I, I would be embarrassed for you to see my desk in my office. It's got piles of paper everywhere. And I'm kind of, I'm not the most organized person, but I love Scrivener because it allows me to sort of have everything and throw it in there and I can find it and I can, when I need to, and there's a point in the project where I really need to get things organized, I can do it. And it's very easy to do that. And 
and Scrivener, but it's also easy to just, you know, throw everything in there and have it. And the search function on Scrivener is just fantastic. So I could be thinking about, you know, particularly working on something that's a book length project where you just have so much material in there. And it's like, oh, one of my sources said something about beer. Someone said, you know, drinking beer, you know, I remembered there was a quote about drinking beer and something about a boat. And so I can, I can, you know, search boat and beer. And all of a sudden this, you know, my interview notes come up and I can find it in this vast mess. And I just absolutely love that. And I have sort of a system of organizing my material within Scrivener, which is, um, you know, I will have a folder that is uh, interview notes and sources. And so I, I, and I will organize and sometimes, you know, underneath you could have sort of sub subfolders or sub um, no, documents. Doc, yeah. yeah, sorry. Thank you. Documents under. So I'll have a person and I will have my interview notes with that person. And then I may put um, if I'm interviewing them to talk about a particular paper, I might put that paper underneath them, something like that. And so I have everything there. And one thing I love about Scrivener is it allows you to split the screen. So what I can do and I have I work on a laptop, but I have an external, very large external monitor that I use when I'm writing and I will split the screen um, vertically. And so I have the, the document that I'm writing on but I can have my interview notes or I can have the paper or whatever sort of research that I'm using on the same screen right there next to it. And I can scroll and I can even, the other thing that's great is I can even within that text file. So sometimes let's say I'm working on a, a document that I'm writing and it's long and I know that I want to move things around. I can have it in both windows. And so I can be looking at the top and the bottom at the same time, which is just fantastic. It's, it's great to be able to do that. And again, I like, I can't imagine how people work in word. It just boggles my mind, you know, and it, it's great to be able to see everything there. And then, you know, when I was finally putting the book together, what was great is I could have each chapter would have um, its own file, but I could have any notes. The other thing that I often do, I mean, in Scrivener, you can take snapshots and it's very easy to keep. You know, I think every writer is nervous about losing things and you don't want to, you know, I'm fine cutting things, but you just think, oh, maybe I'll come back to it. And, you know, 90% of the time I don't, but it's nice to know that it's there either with the snapshot but I'll also keep a file that's called outtakes. And so I'll put everything in there. And so again, if I need to find something like maybe I remember, oh, I wrote something about, you know, I, I want to find that. How did I word it? And I can go back and find that and reinsert it. And it's just, it makes it so easy to organize things. And, you know, when I was putting chapters together, being able to have the different sections and have all of the material in a way where I could see it and, and organize it um, without having to be organized from the start. That's the other thing, because as you start off on a book project, you don't know how things are going to go together. So you kind of start with this big mess. And so my method is to sort of like have, have a folder that's like material, I have a folder that's papers where I will import either PDFs or sometimes I'll just cut and paste relevant parts from a paper or something like that and text. And I can organize that stuff. And then as the form of the, the book is coming together, I can rearrange um, in the way that makes the most sense. Tell us how you really like Scrivener. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I, I feel like I'm evangelical for it. In fact, I've been thinking that I need to do a little, I'm thinking, I, I run these writers workshops and I've been thinking that I need to do just a Scrivener tutorial one of these days because so many people um, are interested in it, but it, it's not always immediately obvious to them. And I'm, I sort of feel like, you know, once you spend even 10 or 15 minutes seeing how it works, it's just, what's great about it is it's really created for writing and for this particular task. And that's what makes it so powerful. Yeah. We've had a couple of guests who do 
training tutorials etc in addition mm -hmm. to their writing because i think as you say some people become evangelists and i don't want to sound too over the top but it is a, a discovery that changes your life when you realize that you can do something that doesn't have a long document that scrolls and that you can, as you say, find things easily, move things around. It is not surprising to hear people who are as committed as you are. Obviously, I choose the most committed people for the podcast, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I just, like I said, I can't imagine uh, using anything else. And it's become such an essential tool for me that I use it for the things that aren't necessarily probably, yeah, there may be better ways to do it. But for instance, organizing my, my workshops, for each workshop, I have a Scrivener file and I can have, you know, a list of my guest speakers. I have a list of the schedule. I can put all of these things together. The other thing that I love is so, you know, oftentimes I'll be doing a workshop that I've done before. And so each time... Time, I make it a little bit different. But what I can do is the previous um, Scrivener file for that particular type of workshop, I can open it up and I can move things over. So if I want to use the same homework, I can just easily copy it over and, and use the things that are similar without any, you know, difficulty. Or you can just duplicate that previous file and rename it. And then you've got everything that's in it. Take out what you don't need anymore. Exactly. Okay. I want to get back to something in your book that really kind of gave me an itch. Because a lot of the people you're talking, I, I mean, I understand professional athletes, elite athletes, and they'll do their crazy things like Tom Brady's pajamas and all that. But why does it seem that so many non-professional athletes are spending so much time worrying about their performance and recovery? Is this a form of addiction, this, this running for the dopamine and whatever other, <laughs> you know, brain chemicals you get from running? I mean, I did run for many years when I was in my 20s. You get a runner's high. Is that, what, is that what's driving people to spend more time trying to get just a little bit better? I think there's a couple of things going on here. One is that, you know, this, this is something you each of us is getting older every day. And I think for a lot of people who are sort of weekend warriors or, or you know, aren't performance athletes but are doing it for health and fitness, um, they really, you know, your time is limited. As you get older, recovery becomes more important. You know, it, it hurts a little more the next day when you're 40 than it does when you're 20, right? And so people, you know, just become inherently more interested in this stuff as they get older. Um, but the other thing is there's so much marketing around this. And we're really living at a moment where I think as a culture, we've been convinced that there's sort of an optimal way to do everything. And there's this really big FOMO, you know, fear of missing out and this sense of like, oh, I could be doing this better. And, you know, the marketing really promotes this anxiety. Like there's this great trick that you're missing out on. And if you're not doing it, you know, you're not, you're not the optimal you that you can be. And I think we've sort of been convinced that there's this optimal version of ourselves. That's just, you know, two weird tricks away. Yeah. But don't people learn after they've done a half a dozen different supplements and cryotherapy and this and that, that it's not making that much of a difference? Well, the problem is it's very hard uh, if you're experimenting with yourself to know the difference, right? Like, so if you go, so, you know, for the book, I tried all of these things and it was really interesting. It actually gave me some insight into why some of them are so popular. So for instance, cryotherapy, which is, you know, completely ineffective. There's just no good evidence that it helps for recovery. And in fact, cold may actually be slightly detrimental to recovery. And there's some physiological reading reasons for that. But cryotherapy is basically you get naked and stand in this giant drum and they re release this liquid nitrogen. And it's very, very cold. Um, and you're in this for like two minutes. It feels like standing
standing naked in a blizzard. And so what I found is that you get this enormous adrenaline rush. And so there's a sense of like, oh, this must be working. I can really feel it. And wow, this is really powerful. And, and there's very good evidence that placebos that are painful are more effective than ones that are inert. And like a placebo shot is more effective than a placebo pill. And I think in a lot of cases, you know, what's going on here is people feel like, yeah, this must be working. I can feel it. You get out of there. My legs are really cold. This must have really helped me recover. And I haven't done, you know, the, the, the counter example where I did the exact same workout, the exact same thing. Now you could try and do that, that, um, experiment and try things with and without, but it's just very hard. And we tend to be very um, misled. It's hard. It's hard to really measure this stuff. Well, you can't have the exact same conditions, the exact same amount of sleep the night before, the exact same physical condition that you're in when you do two workouts. So you can't measure it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but there are things that you can do. So for instance, you know, I write in the book about a, a college uh, track coach who had his athletes measure, just measure their sleep. And it correlated very closely with their performance, both in practice and in competitions. And so, you know, they, they, it, that was sort of very convincing to them. You know, everyone knows that sleep's important and he told them to sleep. But when he showed them their data, it was like, oh, wow, this really does matter. Yeah. You say in the book, the benefits of sleep cannot be overstated. It's hands down the most powerful recovery tool known to science. Now, I wear one of these wrist computers. And for a, uh -huh. a few years ago, for an article, I started tracking my sleep. I was comparing different sleep tracking apps to see how, it, how they worked. And I still wear it when I sleep, and I still track my sleep. And I know it's not precise that when it says deep sleep, two hours 45, it's not two hours 45, but I can tell over a night's sleep if I've had enough or if I need to take a nap in the afternoon. And for that alone, I find it worthwhile. I know that it's not precise and it never will be. You need to be hooked up with the EEG in a sleep study for that to be really precise. That's right. And I think, you know, these tools can have a place. And I think the important thing is like like you've done, understanding you know, the imprecision so that you're not putting too much credence in them. So it's like they're crude tools. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, you want to use them so that you can learn how to better read your own body and understand so that you should be able to feel like without the watch, like, oh, I can feel that I had a restful night's sleep last night or, oh, I, I sense that I'm tired. And, you know, my, my watch, my, my sleep tracker is confirming that. But, you know, at some point you should, you should not need to rely on these things too. And this is not to say that I'm telling you to, to get rid of them, but I think it is important that we don't outsource sort of our decision-making on these, these tools that may or may not be very accurate. There's two more things I want to ask about. One is you discovered a flotation tank. And now this is really interesting because in the early 80s, I knew someone in New York who had one. And I went to this thing many times, and it was extraordinary the first time, particularly discovering that kind of relaxation and meditation. And that's led me to be a regular meditator pretty much since then. And you kind of, in the chapter, you're really skeptical about it, but you ended up being convinced, didn't you? I did. You know, this was so interesting because I actually put this off multiple times because I'm a little bit claustrophobic. Like I hate elevators and this is so the flotation. So it's funny, they've been rebranded. They used to be called sensory deprivation chambers. Well, we called them isolation tanks in the early eighties. Yeah. But now they've been rebranded as float tanks. You know, you're floating, you're not trapped. Um, but I, I was really sort of anxious about doing this. Um, and I went in, but as part of the book, you know, I have a chapter on mindfulness and, and relaxation and meditation and all this. And I'm not a natural meditator. Um, and what I found is that going into this flotation 
mountain tank. You know, I was very nervous about it, but I got in there and I, you know, with all of these things that I did, I really tried to be game and I tried to go in with an open mind. I knew that some of the pseudoscientific claims that were being made were, were garbage, but I also knew that, you know, finding a way to relax is very helpful to recovery. And so it may be that this stuff works, but not through the, you know, this pseudoscience that they're using as explanations, which is interesting because what I found is that so many of these things, science was being used as sort of a way to make something seem more legitimate, even in cases where that wasn't necessary. So anyway, I get into the float tank and what I found was it was just incredibly relaxing. The The hour was up and I didn't want to get out. And it, it, for me, it was like forced meditation for people who don't aren't good at meditation. And so I, I really loved it and I didn't expect it. That was very unexpected. But the thing that was really interesting is that then I went out on book tour and talking to people about this, I got again and again, people would say, oh, so the secret to recovery is float tanks. And I said, well, <laughs> no. Like, you know, they worked really well for me. I like them, but it might not work for you. Like the, the people were looking for that one magic bullet, exactly. aren't they? And it's like, you're missing the point. The point is not that it's the flotation tank. The, the point is that it's meditation. It's finding a way right. to unwind and to relax and to give your body the resources it needs to really, you know, do that recovery, which is relaxing. And we're just in a moment in our society where people have lost the ability to relax. And it's not, you know, there's this idea that every moment of the day must be productive. And no one wants to just sit there and do nothing or lie, you know, worse, lie down and do nothing or take a nap. <laughs> and yet, in many cases, that's exactly what we need. Yeah. So you seem to have found the answer, though, because at the end of the book, you say, give me my morning walk, some meditation or floating, late mornings in bed, and maybe a bit of massage here and there, and then let every day end with a glass of wine and a sunset. Yeah, that's pretty much my life, I have to say. After going through all of these things like the infrared sauna and the ice baths and everything else, you end up with just these practical solutions that basically don't cost anything. That's right. That's right. And I mean, I think that's the, the silver lining here. You know, people are looking for the silver bullet and the product they can buy. But I think it's actually really good news that you don't need to buy anything. It's really about habits and about stuff. You know, it's stuff that you already know, but that doesn't mean that it's easy and it doesn't mean that you're already doing it. I think everyone knows that sleep's important, but the only way to really get it right is to prioritize it. And I think so often people don't do that. Well, I think one thing people should buy is your book, Good to Go. Thank you. Christy Ashwanden, thank you so much for joining me. Happy to be here. If you like the podcast, please follow it in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Scrivener, go to ScrivenerApp.com. Join us next month for another conversation on Right Now with Scrivener. <laughs>